Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. Ontario has signed a new immigration deal with the federal government. Ontario Labor Minister calls it historic. What makes this one different? Well, we'll give into the implications of that as well. And we will cover all things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini with his weekly Washington report. This is the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it's getting underway right now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, go back to last Friday. And uh, the final day of the Public Order Emergency Commission uh, kicked off, of course, with testimony from the Prime Minister. It was a very long session, of course, uh, with questions and answers. And uh, Justin Trudeau spoke about his discussions with different political leaders about dealing with the winter's truck convoy, of course. Global's Kyle Benning has more details. Justin Trudeau says he and leaders in his government started seriously considering using the act on February 10th before announcing it on the 14th. The Prime Minister said in meetings leading up to the invocation, there was agreement from government agencies to use the Emergencies Act. The collective advice of Cabinet, of the public service, and my own inclination was that this was a moment to do something that we needed to do to keep Canadians safe. The Commission will have until February 20th to submit a report to the House of Commons and Senate about how the Act was used and any recommendations to change its powers. Kyle Benning, Global News. So let's uh, talk about that, and I don't know maybe exactly what the expectations were of the Prime Minister, but uh, the uh, analysis of his uh, his testimony, I guess, and uh, his answers to some of these questions is, uh, well, shall we say mixed at this stage. Uh, joining us to uh, try to assess all of this is uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, uh, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us. Thanks, Bill. Good. Uh, thanks for having me. I, I, look, I don't want to get you know start rating this like it was a performance or something, but there was a, a a lot of expectation, a lot of pressure on the prime minister, especially based on some of the testimony that we had heard previously uh, to his uh, his time on the stand and, and behind the the microphones here. Uh, I'm I'm seeing, I guess, depending on which publication you want to read or which blog you want to read, uh, a pretty mixed reaction. Some said, well, he didn't actually meet the test, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not so sure if that was what he was trying to do. I, I got the sense as the the testimony went on on Friday that he was basically saying, this is why I did it. You know, I'm, I'm not the lawyer, but I'm the prime minister. And I had to gather all this information to make a choice. And this was the choice. I think that's it. That's it. I think that what he was trying to do was political rather than legal. And I mean, there is like, it's a law and there is a threshold set out in the law for what the federal government has to do in order to be able to justify having used it. But, if it comes back that, you know, Justice Rouleau says that threshold wasn't met, well, <laughs> there's not really legal consequences for that. Any consequence is political. And so what he's really trying to do when he's, you know, he's doing this appearance and, yeah, it was ours, he's talking to the commission, but he's really talking to the public, anybody who's listening, and, you know, which is probably not, uh, you know, per capita that many people, but he's trying to make the argument that will resonate in people's minds, regardless of what the commission finds. Because that's really where the test is, I think. And and uh, there was supportive evidence of this as well, and, and the prime minister brought that up, you know, basically saying, you know, you know look, at, I, you know, I, I understand it's a law and there's a legal aspect to this, but I talked to the justice minister, even though Lametti wasn't very forthcoming with his information. The, the prime minister seemed to indicate that that this is what Lametti was suggesting that he do. Uh, you know, the head of CSIS, the same thing, his own security advisors, the same sort of thing. So it's not as if he made this decision lightly. At least that's not the impression he certainly left us with. 
that's it. He made it sound really like they considered this initially as part of a suite of options for dealing with what was happening, but then they parked it and came back to it only weeks later when it seemed that there was no other solution and this was getting worse rather than better. And by the time he took the stand, I mean, obviously he was the last witness, we had already heard from lots, well, you know, other ministers, senior public servants, the head of CSIS, the clerk of the Privy Council, Jody Thomas, all of whom gave this sense that they had advised the prime minister that this was the right thing to do. And so to the extent that he could show during his own testimony that he was supported, that this was he was acting on advice, he even said like the day of, he wasn't sure when he woke up that morning whether he was going to do the Emergencies Act or not, which seems a bit, you know, that, that, that seems weird to think about in some ways. But it's it, he tried to make the argument that this was a long time coming. This was a basis. This was on the basis of a balancing act around how they could do the least harm, essentially. So how can we keep people safe, but at the same time not use the most, you know, interventionist tool we have if we don't have to? There's another element to this, too, and, and I don't know if it goes to the extent of actually justifying what he did, uh, but he spent a fair bit of time, in actual answer to some of the questions that were thrown at him, uh, about the performance or non-performance, I guess, of Ottawa police in situations like this. And the, I think the insinuation from the tone that he was giving anyway, uh, Laurie, seemed to be, look, if these guys had done their job, I wouldn't have had to do this. Yeah, and I think a lot of people in Ottawa would agree with that, that the, the state of things on the ground was such that people were wondering why the Ottawa police weren't enforcing what they could enforce, right? So why were the trucks not being ticketed and towed? And we heard later that, that you know, towing companies were nervous to do that because they were afraid of retaliation from people who were participating in the convoy. And so you could see how the federal government response was, was a response to that in that they could use the Emergencies Act to compel towing companies, which didn't necessarily make towing companies happy, but it was a solution in the sense that once this thing was put in place, you could see immediate progress. And within a pretty short period of time, something that had locked Ottawa down for three weeks was now being moved out. And by the following Monday, that was it. And so when you look at it from the kind of on-the-ground perspective, yeah, I mean, there seemed to be not just, not necessarily the case that other orders of government didn't have the tools to deal with it. It's that they weren't possibly using the tools they had. And so then when you looked at what tools the federal government had, this was, you know, apparently the one that made the most sense. I, I know the uh, the quote that is most often used, I'm sure you've seen it probably dozens of times over the last 48 hours as well, is the prime minister's assertion that uh, I had to be the somebody that did something about this, which is basically, as you say, a condemnation of the Ottawa police and of the other levels of government that basically, you know, said, we, you know, we got this, but they didn't have it at, at any time. Yeah. And that was also an acknowledgement, too, that the Ontario government, you know, based on a lot of the testimony we heard, was relatively absent and didn't want to be at the table for those political discussions. And the other two orders of government were kind of hoping they would show up more than they were. And so for the prime minister, he was, you know, he was saying, look, like, I, I can understand why, from their perspective, if other orders of government are being blamed for this, if people are blaming the municipality and the Ottawa police because they're on the ground and they're not dealing with it, or they're dealing with the federal government because they think this is parliamentary precinct and so surely the federal government has jurisdiction, nobody's blaming the province? Fine, stay out of it. And so it was that kind of political back and forth that possibly affected what the Ontario government's response was, and also because they were a couple of months ahead of, a few months ahead of an election. 
So all of those factors weighing in. What's uh, what's the long term uh, ramification of all of this stuff? As you mentioned, there's there's no political consequence to this, except at the next election, people going to make up their minds or not, as as time would have it. And and we've even seen mixed mm-hmm. reaction to that. And Lawrence Martin in the Globe and Mail said, "Look, this is all overblown. People aren't going to hold this against them yeah. two and a half years from now." Others are suggesting they might. I'm not so sure that's the case. Uh, I mean, the short term is uh, the Ottawa police chief lost his job; he resigned. But I mean, he was really pressured to do so. But is, is there any long-term consequence that we're going to see from this? Well, I mean, I think the report itself, these things tend not to be overly consumed by the public. Um, I think that probably what the, the heft of the report is going to be is probably more on the recommendation side than it's going to be heavily, you know, condemning what the government did or celebrating what the government did either, right? Like these things it's probably going to be an opportunity to talk about what could have gone better and here are some recommendations kind of thing. So maybe he'll recommend something around security on the parliamentary precinct. We can already, um, like even now, the Wellington Street is in front of Parliament Hill. You can't drive there anymore. And so we've seen some some measures taken already, but I think probably there'll be some recommendations around coordination between orders of government and management of security on Parliament Hill and what to do if something like this happens again. But as far as the politics of it, I think people will remember the convoy. People will remember the fact that it wasn't safe for the prime minister to go to work and public transit was jammed up and the city was jammed up and businesses couldn't function and people couldn't just walk around and do their normal thing. And I think that that was the whole thing wasn't just about the convoy. It was also about different attitudes around how governments had managed COVID-19. It was about attitudes about Trudeau. It was about you know, what, what your your personal state is financially, whether you could work from home during the pandemic or not. Like, there's all kinds of things that seem to weave into the narrative of the convoy. Those things matter politically, big time. But I think probably, with all respect to the commission's work, um, the findings of the commission are probably not going to be insurmountable for either the government or the opposition. I, I got that sense, too. I mean, you were there. I mean, you saw this unfolding on a daily basis. Uh, not too many of the people that are commenting on this in, in the national media, especially, or even on so- social media, were there. Uh, and it wasn't just the prime minister that couldn't go to work. It was an awful lot of people at work in the downtown core that didn't go to work. Yeah. They were intimidated. Shops were closed. That fabulous indoor mall right beside the Western Hotel there was essentially uh, you know, evacuated, and people couldn't go back in there for fear of, of repercussions. So uh, you have to get this whole thing in perspective of time and place, don't you? Oh, absolutely. I think it would be a far different lens, right? If you if you were hearing about it and seeing it on the news, but you didn't actually, you know, you weren't there. But, I mean, I think that that was part of what the federal government was grappling with, too, because part of this testimony was he was talking about, like, talking to the local MPs, who are obviously federal representatives and who are wearing their federal hats, but they're also local members of parliament who are representing their communities, and saying people are really being um, made to feel afraid that they businesses are getting disrupted, people are being intimidated because they're wearing masks, and they're dealing with that in a way that's very much on the ground. And also, I thought a really interesting part of his testimony was this comparison to the tone and tenor of the convoy and some of the things that the Prime Minister saw when he was on the campaign trail in 2021, and him really identifying, you know, and connecting this kind of anger toward politicians and anger about the way things are going, and him, you know, that being a big part of why he was really worried about people's safety. And so 
I think, all, again, we, we could see the kind of the range of things that he was thinking about with his cabinet colleagues. I think we learned a lot from Freeland's testimony, too. Uh, it's going to be February before this final report comes out, and uh, which makes it even further removed, almost a year since the incident happened itself. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to be really interested to see just how this is going to be received. I got a pretty good impression of what the opposition party is going to try to do with it, but uh, I'm not so sure if the Canadian public is even going to be paying attention then, the way things seem to be happening these days. Laurie, uh, great to get your perspective on this as always. Thanks so much for this today. Have a great week. You too. Take care, Bill. Okay, here, Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, who, of course, is in Ottawa, in the nation's capital, and saw this the whole thing unfold. Uh, we mentioned, you know, the, the testimony is over, but the, technically, of course, the uh, the inquiry continues. Now the experts start to go through the testimony and do their assessment of it and start to put this report together. And like I say, it's probably going to be early February before we really get a hold of it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A recent poll suggesting that 75% of Canadians surveyed are worried about the impact that Ottawa's immigration plan is going to have on housing and government services. Don Kelly has some details. The poll by Leger and the Association of Canadian Studies comes after Ottawa unveiled plans to admit significantly more immigrants in the next few years. The government and industry say the move to admit half a million new immigrants by 2025 is necessary to fill job shortages and offset Canada's aging workforce. But three-quarters of respondents are somewhat or very concerned the plan will result in excessive demand for housing, as well as health and social services. 49% say the government plans to admit too many immigrants. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press. Now, ordinarily, uh, a number of politicians would respond to that and say, okay, we got to stop immigration. And frankly, we've heard some politicians, uh, especially on the right of the political spectrum, that have said just that. Uh, clear thinking and, and, and intelligent politicians, though, uh, take a different perspective on this altogether. Instead of worrying about what immigration is going to do, they're concerned about what's going to happen if we don't increase immigration. And to that end, uh, the Ontario government and the federal government uh, have struck a deal, which they think is going to be mutually beneficial. Uh, to talk about this and uh, lots more news from Queen's Park, uh, so pleased to welcome, welcome back to the program, Sabrina Nanji, the publisher of Queen's Park Observer. Uh, Sabrina, thank you for the time. Hope you had a great weekend. Yeah, happy Monday. Yeah, it, it, well, I hope it is a happy Monday. Let, let's talk about this deal with uh, the federal and provincial governments. I know that uh, Monty McNaughton, the Ontario minister, has been working diligently for this. And basically, uh, as you've been reporting in the past with us here, there's a there's almost a, a set number that the uh, the federal government wants each province to allow in, and that, that, that's you know been affected obviously by the pandemic over the last couple of years. But McNaughton wanted that number doubled because we need people to fill jobs right now. It sounds like he got what he wanted though, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, the details on this um, haven't been fully confirmed yet because other provinces are still in talks with the federal government about, uh, you know, these thresholds for bringing in new immigrants. Um, And Ontario has actually been pushing uh, to double that number that we normally get, which is 9,000, roughly 9,000 spots. And so uh, McNaughton was pushing for 18 to to double that to 18,000. And, and, you know, he's kind of hinting at at that's what he's gotten. But uh, we're waiting to hear the, the actual, you know, the, the details of this. Um, but, but it does seem like 
the, the Ontario has gotten what they they wanted at least on that front. Um, and and as you mentioned right at the outset, you know we need immigrants. The federal government is looking to you know boost numbers significantly over the next couple of years, and a lot of these folks are going to be coming to Ontario. Um, and so interestingly, the Ford government has kind of spun this uh, you know influx of, of immigrants as justification for them um, carving up the green belt and pushing forward with these controversial strong mayor powers, uh, which have, again, you know, gotten supersized in a way in a move to in a bid to to build more housing and spur more housing construction, which I think everyone can agree is um, is an issue. And so, you know, we've heard the premier muse about where are we going to put, you know, hundreds of thousands of immigrants in the next couple of years. Uh, we're going to need housing to to fill those spots and and even to, you know, build, help build those spots, um, bringing in, you know, folks on the construction side, um, skilled trades, uh, that type of thing. So I think, you know, Ontario is feeling pretty good and pretty confident in this. Uh, as far as, you know, the justification when it comes to some of these controversial housing decisions, I'm not quite sure if the public is sold on that quite yet. Well, yeah, because uh, you can't look at any one of these policies in isolation, can you, Sabrina? Because Especially because even the government's trying to, you know, connect the dots here. Uh, and, and, hey, we're going to have more immigrants in there. And I think everybody understands why that's a good thing. At least I hope they do anyway. But then he spins that around and says, well, this is why we're going into the green belt. You know, we just can't build enough uh, accommodation within the existing framework and in, within existing uh, city limits. And uh, I know that there's a lot of pushback. Even Hamilton Council is wondering right now how they're going to try to fight policies like this. And it, it, it really comes down to that element of this, uh, about what's going to happen in the green belt. And uh, as as we've talked about in the past, as you and I have talked about in the past, uh, a lot of people are outraged by this because the, the premier himself and the municipal affairs minister, Minister Clark, were adamant uh, before the election that they would never do something like this. And it only took them a couple of months after uh, getting another majority government that they just basically uh, absolutely turned around on this and said, now we're going to have to do this. What's your read on this? You've been watching these guys for a long time now. Is, is there going to be a pushback? Is there going to be a long-lasting uh, uh, result here from people who simply say we just can't trust these guys anymore? Or do we, like we do so often before, just kind of get outraged for a month or two and then forget about it? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it remains to be seen what Im lasting impact this is going to have on the Ford government's, uh, you know, politics of, of this. I mean, obviously, they just got a, a whopping majority in June um, and, and they can really plow ahead and do whatever they want. But this is hands down a flip flop and it does raise credibility issues. You know, how can we trust anything the premier says? Because as you mentioned, you know, in 2018, during that campaign, Ford promised not to touch the green belt. And we heard that repeatedly over the the following four years, right, that they wouldn't do it because, you know, that promise had to be made after this secret behind the scenes video leaked where he was saying to developers, you know, he's going to allow housing development on a big chunk of this protected area. And lo and behold, they have actually done that now. Now, of course, you know, the Ford government says that they're swapping in roughly another 9000 acres that will be protected. Advocates say that that really doesn't, you know, undo the damage of opening up roughly 7000 acres in the first place. Um, but this is hands down, like a, a flip-flop from Ford. Uh, I, I do think, you know, four years, uh, 2026, the next election it is a long ways off. Um, and so if, you know, if the Ford government is able to deliver on housing, I think 
um, they could at least, you know, convince enough of the public that the ends justified the means here, because we can all agree that, you know, housing is, is a huge crisis, whether or not they can do that in four years. Uh, you know, they, they've bitten off a, a lot here. And, and so that is a very ambitious goal uh, that the housing starts to get over 100,000 annually. I mean, that is, you know, unheard of even in, in recent history now. So it's a very ambitious plan. Um, I don't know if the pushback is going to be loud enough. I think, you know, one um, interesting you know, angle here is that the opposition parties are also leaderless right now. And mm -hmm. the NDP is kind of ramping up to their to their leadership race. Uh, you know, the deadline is just in, in about a week now for, you know, wannabe NDP leaders to sign up. We only have Marit Stiles in the race so far, and, and she is bringing out the big guns. I think she is really um, feeling confident about being opposition leader. And so one thing that she's done is written to the Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick, asking her to look into, you know, um, some of the land buys that were happening with the Green Belt, which I think, you know, just from an optics perspective, has has come off sketchy to a lot of observers. Uh, you know, we've had developers pay tens of millions of dollars for a number of properties that, you know, up until really just a few days ago, it, it wasn't able to be developed. And so, you know, a lot of these developers could have just been going off of a hunch based on what Ford has kind of said in the past. Uh, but but the uh, Mart Styles wants the Auditor General to look into that. And she has raised, you know, concerns about uh, sharing of insider information, which, you know, is a uh, uh, punishable under the Members Integrity Act, and it's a no-no for MPPs. So the, the AG has not said she'll look into it yet. Um, but I think there are a lot of questions about, you know, sort of what's been going on with developers behind the scenes. Um, and, and so, you know, hopefully to shed some light on that. But, but certainly, you know, if the opposition can really hammer the Ford government on this and, you know, remind the public, I think it could absolutely do some damage to, to Ford's politics. Well, and let's go back to the previous election, not the one they just won in June, but I mean, four years before that, uh, you know, then candidate for member got wrapped on the knuckles because uh, somebody reported and it turned out to be true uh, that he had a private meeting with a whole bunch of developers and promised them he was going to do that. And of course, because of the, the feedback and pushback he got there, he changed his mind. And then, of course, he reiterated that. And then he's gone ahead and done this. So I guess the question that uh, that, uh, well, maybe soon to be leader, uh, Mark Staros is going to ask is, when did the people buy that land? Uh, have they been sitting on this or did they do it based on information that they got from the premier? So this is not over by a long shot, is it? Yeah, this could, um, you know, become very messy, obviously. Um, you know, of course, everything is just kind of speculation at this point. But to have someone like the Auditor General go in and look at this, uh, I think she's the best person to do it because... You know, us just regular folks, we can file freedom of information requests. A lot of that information might be protected because of, uh, you know, cabinet discussions. But someone like the Auditor General really has all, you know, more tools and more access than, you know, an opposition politician, a journalist, or even just, you know, a regular citizen would have. And so I think to kind of shine some light on, on what was happening here, uh, you know, would go a long way for the public um, because certainly this is raising a lot of eyebrows. Um, and obviously, you know, for for Mart Styles and the official opposition, um, they're saying this stinks and and something is, is smells a little fishy here. So so they want someone to look into it. And and frankly, you know, as a journalist who's all about transparency, I really do hope the AG looks into this. Not not you know saying there's necessarily any wrongdoing happening, but. Um, to, to kind of have that access and to like, you know, show us how these decisions were made, I think would really go a long way because the Ford government hasn't, you know, done the best job in explaining, you know, a very controversial mm -hmm. decision that they've made here. 
Well, they're not going to quietly into the uh, Christmas break. That looks like it's not going to happen at all. I'll be watching for your reporting on this as always, Sabrina. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. Sabrina Nanji, publisher of the Queen's Park Observer. And things still going hot and heavy, of course, uh, at Queen's Park before they do break uh, for a couple of months over the uh, end of this year and, of course, the early part of uh, 2023. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to find out what's going on in the U.S. Capitol because, let's face it, it's a, a huge influence on what's going to be happening in Canadian politics, and there's a tie into that. Uh, and to do that, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to have you back in the program today. Good morning. You touched on this a little bit last week when you joined us about uh, the changing of the guard uh, after the midterm elections. But with both political parties and and the repercussions of that, the, the announcement, of course, last week that Nancy Pelosi was going to be stepping aside uh, as the House leader for the Democrats and uh, who's going to be talking there. Uh, and 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 that that seemed to be the beginning of a, a number of different changes. Right now, it's kind of out with the old and in with the new here, isn't it? It is out with the old uh, and in uh, with the new because there was this you know kind of domino effect where the House Speaker, the outgoing House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, saying that she's going to step down from a leadership position and almost immediately uh, handing the torch over to uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who will become likely uh, the first uh, black person to become the leader of uh, the Democratic conference and. And then we saw that there was going to be the House uh, Majority Leader, uh, the Democratic Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer, stepping down, uh, and then Jim Clyburn stepping down as Chief Whip. But in the middle of all of that, as we have some new blood coming into leadership in the in the Democratic Party, at this, uh, uh, Jim Clyburn has said, well, maybe I'm not going to give up full reins of leadership. And he's now trying to take the number four position uh, in the Democratic Party. And it is ruffling some feathers with the kind of younger members within the conference saying, look, we need kind of to have a, a complete flip over here. But at the same time, some members are saying, look, maybe it's good to have somebody with a bit of experience guiding along the kind of uh, new set that's coming in. But ultimately, what we're seeing in the Democratic Party is what appears to be, at least at the surface, a smooth transition off our cry from what we're seeing on the Republican side. Reggie, perception is awfully important in politics, as, as you and I have talked about in the past. Uh, I mean, we have an octogenarian in the White House, of course, with Joe Biden, and he's certainly at that age not going to tell somebody uh, else who's elderly that, hey, you have to step aside. Uh, But the Jim Clyburn thing seems to be something that could cause a rift within that party. Uh, But there's a tie in there. I mean, most pundits, and I know you talked about this when it was happening, uh, pretty much credit Jim Clyburn with with turning Joe Biden's presidential ambitions around in in South Carolina in that primary. These seems like 100 years ago now. Uh, Without Clyburn, Biden's probably not in the White House. So how strong is that tie and how loyal is, is not just Clyburn to Biden, but Biden to Clyburn? I think that there is kind of a, um, a mutual understanding here that one exists with the other uh, and that Clyburn did play at least a, a kind of important role uh, in, you know, some of the base lining up behind Joe Biden when there was fears that, yes, he might be a little bit too old. Yes, he may be too much of the old guard of the Democratic Party coming to lead. But ultimately, uh, this was um, not only a beneficial kind of long term friendship, but also a beneficial backing of Joe Biden when he was the candidate 
candidate, but Clyburn himself says that he wants to stay in because uh, the new leadership that's coming in is from the West Coast in California. It's from Massachusetts. It's from non-Southern states. And Clyburn says that he is the one who still holds that connection to the South to allow the Democratic Party to not, as he sees it, ignore the South or forget the South, understanding that what we're seeing in the South right now, well, you know, you look at places like Texas, you look at places like Florida, they are kind of falling back out of purple towards a much more red state. The South is still in play in places like Georgia, in places like South Carolina, in places like North Carolina. And Clyburn says that he himself is going to be the one who's able to tie the Democratic Party to the roots that are in the South. And he doesn't want to step aside because of that. You know, whether or not that creates a bit of a rift within the party, we'd have to wait to see until after, you know, um, you know, full elections take place and, and leadership is in position. But at the same time, there have been some pundits that say, look, when you have new pilots flying, it's always good to have an experienced co-pilot uh, sitting in the back kind of helping just in case there's a bit of a bump. Uh, that and, and that's not surprising. I mean, you know, the, the Democrats in power and they usually get whooped in the midterms. They d- that didn't really happen. But I mean, there were some changes there and they did lose control of the House. So it's, it's I guess, sort of anticipated that, that Pelosi and others would step aside. But I think the surprise here, Reggie, is it's happening on the other side of the floor, too. Uh, Kevin McCarthy assumed he was going to be the guy. Uh, you know, he had closely aligned himself to Donald Trump, and notwithstanding the fact that he accused Trump of being part of the January 6th insurrection, three days later he was down at Mar-a-Lago, and I guess he, you know, drank the Kool-Aid there. Uh, but he may not win this job. As a matter of fact, the, the numbers as they look right now say he's probably not going to get that job. Where's that coming from? I mean, is, is this an anti-Trump movement within the caucus? It's it's an anti-McCarthy movement within the caucus, Ah. and there are some kind of party politics that are at play here. Look, Kevin McCarthy thought that he was going to get this big Republican red wave, and ultimately that was going to kind of solidify his ability to say, look, I can be the leader that this party needs. But when you only have a very slim majority in the Republican side now that kind of mirrors where the Democrats have been for the last couple of years, there are real concerns here among some of the kind of farther right or within the Freedom Caucus uh, that say McCarthy may not be up to the job. And there have been three or four that include people like Matt Gates uh, that say that they will not vote for McCarthy to be in a leadership position. So what does that do? Well, it throws it into flux. And it means that if McCarthy doesn't have the numbers, if they're not able to kind of bring somebody up, uh, there's a real risk here that Republicans don't have 218 votes to put a leader in place. And we talked about this last week. There's a real chance here it's slim, but it's real, that Democrats could pull back some uh, moderate Republicans and possibly put their own person forward, somebody say like Liz Cheney, to be the Speaker of the House because there is such a fracture in the Republican Party. Some of it has to do with Trump. Some of it has to do with the fact that Republicans just took such a licking during that uh, during that midterm uh, a couple of weeks ago, which is why all of a sudden you see Kevin McCarthy cozying up with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. They've been kind of at each other's throats for the last couple of weeks. She represents a part of the GOP that he might not always have control of. If she's on his side, he's hoping that may bring others over. Are are they blaming McCarthy for the bad showing or or, or are they blaming Trump or both? I mean, they're blaming a little bit of both. I mean, Donald Trump obviously played a significant role in the fact that Republicans weren't able to get control or at least um, significant control of the House. And obviously they lost the Senate because of that. And they lost a number uh, of gubernatorial races, again, at the hands uh, of Donald Trump. Uh, but Kevin McCarthy did play a role in this. The Republican Party has been fractured since Trump. It was it was McCarthy's kind of walk forward two steps back in his blame of Donald Trump when it came to January 6th. It's been his kind of, uh, you know, push Donald Trump aside when you don't need him, bring him in when you do need him attitude. 
that has left those kind of you know Republicans that really do line up and stand behind Donald Trump to question if McCarthy is where they need to be, because they still see Trump as the lifeblood of the party. And if somebody is wavering in that, or at least not all in, there are questions. Secondly, when I said there are party politics, some people within the Republican Party, some lawmakers, they want to see power handed down to rank and file and taken away from the House Speaker. McCarthy doesn't seem to be all on side for that as well. So, you know, there's a rift here and and whether or not this party can mend it, um, you know, we're, we're quickly running up against the clock to see if they're able to. Uh, in your reporting right after the midterms, I, I thought it was extremely uh, interesting to, to get the perspective on, on Republicans' views of Trump. I think there were some people, as you reported, uh, within the party that thought, okay, fine, he's not president anymore. We've done poorly in the midterms. He's out of here. He, he's not going to be a, a factor. He's still a factor in, within that party. I, I, I'm not sure how strong it is, but the story, of course, that you were reporting on, on just a, a day or so ago, about uh, Trump actually uh, hosting a Holocaust denier, Nick Fuentes, uh, at his uh, Mar-a-Lago estate earlier this week. I guess Kanye was down there, too. Uh, I mean, that that's really, a, a, again, a, another reach out to the extreme right wing of that party. Are they the power brokers right now? Have they given up on Trump, or is he still their guy? Look, Trump is, is going to be their guy, you know, until he's not their guy anymore. This The Republican Party can find themselves being, you know, a little bit clinging to opportunism. And if Donald Trump appears to be doing not as good as they would like, you know, they may push him to the side despite what may come up from the base. And look, uh, you know, Donald Trump's uh, uh, dinner party that he held at Mar-a-Lago with, um, you know, uh, with a known racist and 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 somebody who has made anti-semitic comments in the ca- in the past uh you know with the accusations against Kanye West uh you know Donald Trump knew the people that were coming and there were very few staff members in around that party so this is once again another crisis for the party to realize Donald Trump puts himself in situations that will be heavily criticized not only by the democrats but by members within the republican party as well but they still don't fully sit there and disavow him i mean representative James Comer uh you know, made a public comment of Trump needs to, quote, do better judgment in who he dines with. But they don't do anything to push him aside, say we don't want him to lead the party because ultimately Donald Trump still knows how to oftentimes, at least in a general, whip a vote and get Republicans in line. So, again, they need him when they need him. They don't need him when they don't need him. At this moment, they're kind of in flux. and They're trying to figure out whether or not they do or don't. And, and how does a guy like uh, like Ron DeSantis, uh, you know, react to that? I mean, you know, he's almost jumping up and down here, Reggie. You get the sense that I, I want to I want to announce, I want to announce, but the the ghost of Donald Trump is is still very much there, and I, I don't know that that he he feels that he can actually fight that ghost. I think he may be waiting right now because, look, we're still two years out from the election in 2024, and there's a real risk here that someone like Ron DeSantis peaks too early and potentially starts to flame out or there become issues in Florida that he needs to pay attention to as their sitting governor right now that takes his kind of uh, focus away from the national stage. So I think Ron DeSantis is kind of playing the cards as best he can right now, potentially himself hoping that Donald Trump finds himself in a situation, whether it's you know self-inflicted or whether it's the kind of culmination of the series of investigations that he's up against. Uh, Ron DeSantis is trying to kind of play even and steady right now, even as he gets the backing of someone like Elon Musk, who in the last couple of days said that uh, he would back DeSantis over Donald Trump, somebody who's been a kind of strong Trump supporter for the last couple of years. So I think, you know, for someone like DeSantis, he'll look at this and say, look, party, figure yourself out right now. I'm here on the outside looking in. I'll kind of step in when I can, when I should. 
there's another dynamic that's going on here that I wanted to get your perspective on, uh, because I know you've been studying this. We've talked about, well, for instance, the Supreme Court decision uh, about Roe versus Wade uh, some time ago. But the, the, over and above the the, the 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 decision about abortion and the impact it's having there, uh, it's state versus federal government. And and I know this is not a new battle. I mean, you, as long as you've been covering this, I mean, this has been who has the power here. Well, that decision basically uh, kind of gave the ball to to the states once again. Uh, I know they are the United States of America, although there's an argument that maybe they're, they're not so United States these days. But there seems to be a shift now from a central, strong central government to 50 different strong state governments right now. Is how's, how's that playing in Washington, Reggie? Well, I mean, look, there's fear of this. And this, you know, this is kind of playing out right now. They're still trying to get a couple of, of races decided. But, it, you know, ultimately here, when it comes to how the states look, uh, there's a real risk here that a split government in Washington now with Republicans holding the House and Democrats holding uh, the Senate and it making it impossible to get any kind of bipartisan legislation through, that things are going to fall to the state level. And we've seen ever since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, states have really either gone rogue or tried to do as best they can, uh, you know, when it comes to enacting laws. But there are more and more states that are finding themselves in positions of having a super majority where the legislature in the state has enough votes from one party to potentially over ride uh, any kind of veto that comes from uh, the governor. Uh, And there are, I believe, 23, 24, 25 states that find themselves now where lawmakers can simply say, no, we don't want what the governor says, or the governor's on their own party, and they can create whatever rules they want and try to get the state courts and the Supreme Courts out of their way. And this really is a growing concern. I mean, if you go back a couple of hundred years, this was a big concern for the founding fathers who didn't trust state legislatures. But here we are now where nearly half of the U.S. would find themselves in a position of being able to enact or draft laws that would work for that state or work against that state. And there would be nobody that would be able to step in. This is a concern, especially so in a divided government in Washington. Well, it's the politics within politics, I guess. And it's fascinating to watch. We'll be as usual, watching for your reporting on it on Global National this week. Reggie, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.